Good morning. Those of you that are in junior high, if you want to head out with uh, Sarah to your class, you guys can do that now. I was thinking about uh, just some of the songs we were singing, what Pastor Tony just prayed about, about the love of God. Um, and it made me realize that there, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're getting to know somebody, um, maybe you're in a dating relationship with them, or maybe it's a, it's a friend, you're just starting to build a friendship, maybe it's a teacher or a mentor, and you're really kind of drawn to them, and you find you have a lot in common, you love what you talk about, everything they say, you're sort of eating up, and, and then the conversation starts to turn in an area that you didn't expect, and, and maybe they're starting to say some things that you're, you might disagree with or you feel uncomfortable with, and now you're not sure what to do because you were, you were really enjoying where this was going, and now suddenly the conversation's heading in a direction that you're not sure you want to talk about. And uh, I think that we can have that experience a lot uh, in life, but definitely with God. When we, uh, the songs that we've sung this morning are all about the love of God. And on one level, I suppose no, none of us would say, well, I don't want that. I don't want love. I don't want grace. I don't want mercy. We all will be drawn into God through that. And actually, we've been studying the story of Scripture, as Melissa said off the top to the 10 of you that were here at the beginning of the service, um, that we have been in a journey through the, for the last year in the story of Scripture, not just as an exercise in studying history or to acquire some new biblical knowledge, but to actually realize that the story of the Bible is the story of life, the story of God, which is our story as well. And our hope, and really the promise that I sort of made to you at the beginning of this is if we really know this story, we will not only know God more, but we will know ourselves more because we will understand our own story better. Now, as you have read this story, the opening pages, the first two chapters are very exciting. It's about a God of love who, who made this beautiful world and put us as human beings in the center of it, in a sense, as a part of creation, but totally distinct because we were the only things in creation that the Bible says we were made in his image. That everything else was according to its kind, but you and I, human beings, were made according to the kind of God. We were not God, but we were made like him. And how were we made like him? Well, we were made to know and love and crave um, love and be in relationship. Um, and God made us to be in relationship with him, with each other, and then he sent us out in the world in a sense to be creative. Just as he has created the world, we are made in his image with the capacity not to make something out of nothing like he did, but to invent and create. And so much of what we enjoy in the world today, not just um, the earth itself, but um, modern technology and innovation is as a result of human beings' capacity to create and innovate. And this is all of the good news of this story that we would all be drawn to. And yet chapter three tells us that ultimately what began to unravel the world so that you and I all look at, no matter what your faith background is, all of us know there's something not right out there and there's some things that are not right in here. And the Bible's explanation for that is that fundamentally though God had put himself at the center and had the, the world in a sense revolve around him and that all of the good things that he had given us were tied to that, we pushed him out of the center and put ourselves there. We said, no, thank you, but no thank you. We will do life our way. Thanks for the earth, thanks for the job, thanks for these bodies, thanks for this capacity and this mind. We will do things the way we think are best. And when we shoved God out of the center, the earth, and in a sense, life began to lose its gravitational center. It began to revolve out of orbit. And, and we have used the word the fallout to describe what has happened, that disintegration occurred in every level of our lives. Now, the, the story doesn't stop there, thankfully. That's only three chapters in. <laughs> that God determined to not let us push him away. 
because he made us to know him and to love him. And so he began the rescue, which culminated at this point in the story, which is the sending of Jesus. And we started, in a sense, that journey at Christmas with the arrival of, of, of the, the Christ child. And now we've been studying his life and just trying to understand what does it mean that God has, in fact, rescued us. And in many respects, all that we've looked at has been very exciting, very good news for us. That, that we are rescued from, from, from sin and guilt and shame, that we are rescued for relationship, that we've been rescued from temptation, that um, we've been rescued from running away from our problems and allow us to actually have healing and true, authentic lives. And all of that is good. And it's like we're being wooed into this story and suddenly Jesus brings up a topic that we wouldn't really wanna talk about, that might make us feel really uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's the chasm what Christians have referred to as hell. And it's a topic that some of us, many of us, will certainly in Jesus' age would have believed in but had some uncomfortability of, but that all of us in this stage, in this country, have a great deal of discomfort with, no matter what your background is. But he, in a sense, has brought us this far in the story, and so I want to encourage you, even as we are singing about, singing about the love of God, knowing that this is who God is, we gotta kinda stay here for a moment and talk about this. Now, let me give you some disclaimers, okay? Um, I don't like preaching on this um, in the sense that it bothers me. Uh, and so, and part of it, I know that, I don't know some of your backgrounds, but I know that a lot of preachers and a lot of churches have used hell as, 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 to manipulate and, and emotionally sort of scare and control people or as sort of a power play in their role. And so, I'm, I'm praying that that is not what comes across to you. I'm an imperfect person. I'm a sinner just like everybody else, just like all the preachers you heard. So I'm not saying I'll never do that. I don't want to do that. So I hope you can sort of set that aside. Maybe that was the last sermon you've ever heard. Maybe this is your first time in church. Maybe this is your first time back in church for a long time. Don't leave, okay? <laughs> Here's why. Here's why. Because regardless of what your faith background is, most people will acknowledge that there isn't a human being that has walked the earth that has been more influential than Jesus. There are more songs sung about this man in more languages on the earth than anyone by a long shot. The cross is a universal symbol of humility and self-sacrifice. Through Jesus, if you study history, you will find that the revolution that began to lift the rights of women and children, if you look at every nation that has, at one point in history at least, called themselves a Christian nation, you will find, as close as we can get to equality between men and women. It's not perfect, but you will find systems that say, yes, we hold this as an ideal, that children are actually valuable. You go to every society where that hasn't been the case, and you will say, why don't they value women, and why do they sell their children? This man, more compassionate, more self-sacrificing, more elevating to all people than anyone in history, and he talked about hell. So you don't have to hear me out or any other preacher, but we're gonna talk about what Jesus said about it. Because of his life, you at least have to say, okay, let me listen to this for a moment and see. So that, those are all my disclaimers. You know the sermon's gonna be good when the first five minutes are, are disclaimers. Um, Jesus said, that he came to give us life. And so my, my encouragement to you to hang in there this morning is that we would find life even in something uh, like death, like that we would talk about it. 
Now, I also recognize I'm not going to cover all the bases. There may be questions. So we're going to do something that we don't often do, but it's one of those rare times that everyone looks forward to. We give out Pastor Tony's cell phone number. Okay, and the reason we're doing that is at the back of your bulletin, we're going to do a Q&A kind of near the end of the service. Okay, because I recognize there may be stuff that as I'm teaching, you're thinking, what about this? What about that? This is one of those topics that uh, people have a lot of background with, a lot of struggle with, a lot of questions with. So I'd love to do a Q&A every week, but we don't often have the time to do it. We're going to set aside a little bit of time to do that here then. So Kurt, we may only have time for one song. We'll see how we go at the end. Um, so the, the, so you, but you need to text those questions in, okay? We're not going to take any from the floor. You're going to text them, Tony. If, as they come up in the service, if I see you fiddling with your phones, I'll just assume you're texting Tony. Uh, so you can do that during the service as it comes up or as we get to the Q&A time, but, but as it comes up, just send him a question and we'll, uh, we'll field those kind of uh, near the end. Sound good? Okay, let's read together. Uh, what's his phone number? Well, it's on the back of the bulletin. Okay, those of you that don't have bulletins. Tony, what's your phone number? 647? 463? 647-463-0559. If, they, if there's someone near you that have a bulletin, just ask them if you can borrow it for a second. Okay. <clears throat> Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores, which was not a sign of sympathy. They were sort of mangy dogs. It was, made him the, the poor man even more unclean because he was being licked by unclean animals. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. If anyone was going to be in heaven, it was him. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. That was the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, Jesus' listeners would have believed in the afterlife. Many people in this culture believe in the afterlife, but judging by pretty much every funeral you go to, everybody thinks that everyone's going to heaven. Doesn't matter what the person's life has lived like. Some of you have maybe even had that experience of close ones, loved ones that have actually hurt you a lot and you're really upset with them and everyone's telling you how great of a person they were at the funeral. Many people believe in afterlife. Everybody believes they all go to heaven. Virtually no one believes in hell. And so various, you know, Jesus' audience would have had some connection with this, but also some things he said would have been uncomfortable for them. And for us, much of it is uncomfortable. And here's what I want to look at today. Why, why would we not want this to be true? Let me, let me just state the obvious for a little while. Okay, why would we not want this to be true? But then say, well, why, why might we hope that it would be? Okay, that's a harder one, and it may sound really callous, but hear me out this morning. It's not. 
Why, why would we not want this to be true, and why might we actually want this to be true? Why might we not want this to be true is because separation, permanence, and the door is locked from the inside. The idea of hell represented here in this story ultimately talks about a chasm whereby human beings become completely separated from the God they know and love or would want to know and love, completely separated from his presence. In the rich man's case, he did not see the separation coming. In fact, everything in his life told him he was fine. That, that culture viewed people who were very wealthy as people who were blessed by God. And people who were very sick and alone and poor like Lazarus, they would have been people, it was kind of like the Jewish form of karma. Like something must have happened, he must have done something, his parents must have sinned. Um, nobody would be that bad off if, if, if they hadn't done something to deserve it. So the rich man clearly would have thought for himself for sure and would have been seen by society as with God and the, rich, and the Lazarus not at all. And in the end, completely reversed. Now the poor man is with, in a sense it says by Abraham's side, it's a picture of being in heaven and the rich man now completely separated. It was a gap that he didn't see coming. And this is what makes hell so difficult, what we would want to believe in, and yet so unexpected. I've heard people say, well, I'll be fine in hell because today I'm not with God. I don't love God. I don't know him. I don't go to church. I'm not interested in religion. And I have lots of friends who don't. So we'll just party in hell with the Coors Light beer girls. You know, like that's how it's going to be. There's nothing wrong with Coors Light. I just, that that's, that's the mentality. And yet what you notice here is that the rich man is alone. And he's completely separated, in fact, from everything. And what did he not get that many people, maybe you've said this before, said that thing before, is like, I don't need it, I'll party in hell with my friends, is a misunderstanding of what today is called in our lives common grace. The rich man didn't understand and never stopped to ask clearly in this story, who gave me all this? Where did all of what I had come from? Who makes it that the sun rises, though spring, though takes its time sometimes? We know it's coming. And as David says in the Psalms, the rain falls. The rain was a sign of blessing, right? Because it was an agrarian society. The rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. Common grace. The grace of God is present in this world all the time. And many, many people receive the benefits from it that don't know God at all. Just because someone doesn't believe in God doesn't mean God's not gonna let the sun rise on that house that day. There is a grace that all of us live with and in a sense, like this rich man, we are ignorant of and we think that what we have brought about is just happenstance or by our own doing. I'm self-made. I got to where I was, where I was. And yet if you start to trace back all of the things that have led to you being where you were, if you're in a good position, did you choose ultimately, you know, as Bono says, where, you, where you're born shouldn't decide whether you live, whether you die. Why does it seem that that's the way it is? Who decided that? Common grace in your life. The rich man didn't get it. And suddenly he thought, wait a second, where have all the blessings gone? Because God was now gone from his life. In a sense, total separation. And that's what, and this is the picture of hell that is probably worse than any other sort of, hell is such a caricatured place with pictures of laughing demons, torturing people in eternal fire. But the Bible uses all kinds of words to describe it that um, make it seem like it's not what we think it is. It says that hell is fire, but it also says it's darkness. So if there's darkness, it can't be fire. So some of these things can't be literal. 
It says it's a bottomless pit, but there's fire. There's a bottomless pit, where are you gonna build the fire? There's a picture of anguish, and the anguish is an internal one. It is a fire that burns mentally, emotionally. There is a disconnection now that will not go away, and an isolation, because there is no one, not anything but ourselves separated from God. This is why it's so bad. It's the separation. It's not about necessarily flames constantly burning you up, but you not dying. It's a, it's a concept of the bottomless pit gives this idea of, of instability. Darkness is a picture of lostness, and fire is a, is a picture of a pain that won't go away. This is why we would not want hell to be true. It is separation from God. That is the ultimate cause of the pain is that now the God, even though we didn't think existed, who brought all of his blessings in our lives, now with him and all of that grace is gone and all that's left is us. It's a chilling picture, but not just separation, permanence. The rich man says, hey, can we do something about this? And Abraham says, there's a fixed chasm here. This cannot be crossed. You might say, well, why? Why is that the case? Well, here's the thing. Heaven and hell, okay, if, if heaven is the place of being forever in the presence of God, both enjoying God, the, the scriptures describe heaven at this place, there won't even be a physical sun because Jesus will be the light that is constantly on. There's this warmth and presence of being with him and all of his blessings. And if hell is the place where he is not now, where everything is gone and we are alone, each of those, in a sense, are places that are destinations at the end of a long journey of a series of steps that have been taken towards that end. In a sense, heaven and hell are making permanent the direction of a life. It's interesting, in another translation, it says, Abraham says to the rich man, in this life you had all you wanted. What was it that he wanted? Everything for himself. He said, you never wanted God. Why would you want him now? What you want is what you have now forever, which is yourself. You were the center of your life, and now forever you will be, and only, the center of your life. Nothing else around you. The direction of your life was always headed away from God. It is just simply making permanent, in a sense, what has always been where you were headed. And Tim Keller puts it this way. Hell is the trajectory of a soul, living a self-absorbed, self-centered life, going on and on forever. The truth is this, as someone once said. If we persist in a direction of our lives, eventually God will second the motion. Whatever direction we persist in, eventually God will say, go ahead. That is what you have always wanted. It's separation, it's permanence, but maybe this is, this is the thing we would most not want it to be, is locked from the inside. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. I do not mean that they do not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy. But they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. What does this mean? It's fascinating the conversation that the rich man has. If you were in that place, again, maybe this is arrogant of us to say this, but if we were in that place, what would you be begging for? 
second chance. Get me out. He never asks to leave. He never asks to leave. What does he do, in fact? He continues on in the same way he has always been. And in fact, he calls on, he assumes Abraham's his father, which is what all good Jewish people would have said. He calls him Father Abraham, and then he starts ordering Lazarus around, like he was one of his servants in his house. Can you send Lazarus to get me some water? It's essentially what he's saying. This is so bad, I need some physical comfort. Can you send him to me? And then he says, no, there's no comfort. Okay, well, can you send him over here? Can you send him over there? And ultimately, he's not even concerned. He's just saying, hey, tell all my buddies it's not what I thought it was. <laughs> they don't want to come here. That's the most selfless thing he can sort of muster in that place. But ultimately, the rich man has not changed at all. In a sense, it is his own self. He does not want to fix what has been undone. He does not want to now treat and look after Lazarus. He just assumes that the world is still revolving around him. Even the worst case scenario for him didn't change his heart and his mind. It essentially says he remained as he was because that's what he had always wanted to be. It, it is the self-enslaved by one's own desires. He never wanted anything more now. And, and this is the whole, the punitive measure doesn't change the heart. It's not as if suddenly he came to his senses. It was a permanence of a state, of a place of thinking and being that he had always been, where he was at the center of the world. And even in the pit of hell by himself, he's ordering around everybody else because nothing has changed in his mind. He was still the center of the universe and he never asks to leave. Now this is, this is a pretty bleak picture of what hell is. You might say, okay, well maybe it's different than I thought it was, but it sounds worse now. Now, this is the point where many of us get stuck, okay, why we would not want it to be true. And we never get to that point to say, well, why might I want this to be true? And, and, and the, here's the thing, like, we need to actually get to that to have a greater understanding of why, if our God is a God of love, would this even be, why would I want this actually to be a reality, even if I wouldn't want myself or anyone I love to be there? Why must this be? Well, the issue of hell is the issue of judgment, right? That this is, this is God's judgment. And it actually in Revelation, the, the end of the story where we see this picture of God sort of judging the world, there is this picture as God is judging evil that he is being worshiped. Now you might say, well, that's sick. Like how could people worship when God is judging people? When, when, when God is, when people are going to hell and people are worshiping, why would that that's, that's bizarre. Why would anyone think that that's a good thing? I looked at the top 100 grossing movies of all time, ever since they were starting to measure box office stuff. And in the top 10, five of them, five of the top 10 grossing movies of all time are stories of good people exacting revenge and judgment on bad people. And we have paid millions of dollars to watch it. Now, does that make us sick? Or does that tell us that something inside of us says it's good when good triumphs over evil? We all want the wicked to be judged. We cheer, there's something inside of us. And it's not, we're not looking for like legal judgment. You know, Iron Man's not a lawyer, right? James Bond is not a, Skyfall was one of those ones in the top 10. Not a prosecuting attorney, he's a trained killer. And he finishes 
the judgment on the wicked in blood. Right? That's what we want to see. We rejoice when good triumphs over evil and when they are judged. There's something wrong with us and the violence of it, but there's something inside of us that says good has to triumph over evil. Evil cannot go unpunished. And you know this in your own life too. If you are holding a grudge against somebody, it's because you want evil to be punished, right? You want that person to pay. And sometimes if someone has, has hurt us or there's a loved one that, that, has been, that someone has hurt your loved one, you may not, we may not be vigilantes of justice. We can't go around doing what we watch people do in movies. But we are holding out for payment. We are holding out for justice. We are angered when evil goes unpunished or when a, 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 a killer is unidentified or someone seems to get away with something. Something inside of us says, this should not be right. Evil should be judged. Even things that aren't even evil, when we shake our fist or worse, that someone who cuts us off in the street, what are we saying? How dare you do that to me? There's an indignation that comes out from the inside of us that says there must be a judge. We all want the wicked to be judged. The question is, who is able to judge? Draw the line in your mind. Okay, do this with me, this exercise. Draw the line in your mind between good and evil. Which side are you on? Where's everybody? Where's, who's on what side of the line? Most of us draw the line with ourselves on the good. Okay, we're, we're honest. Okay, we're not perfect. But where you draw the line between good and evil, we're usually on the good side of the good and evil. And who's on the other side? Murders, rapists, people, human traffickers who sell children for profit, suicide bombers, people who walk into cafes, 30 or 40 people, women, children, innocent people, and blow themselves up. They're on the evil side of the line, right? They're, they're going to hell or whatever we want to call it. Now, if you don't want to draw the line, you're basically just saying, well, everybody's in. doesn't matter what you do. You don't really believe that. Somebody's on the other side of that line. Some of us have a lot of people over there. Some of us just have a few. There's just a few people on the other side. But there is a line, and we're on one side, and everyone else is on the other. The problem is the suicide bomber thinks he's going to heaven. He thinks he's on your side of the line, and you're on the other side. That's why he did it. He thinks he's going to heaven. Now even more so. That, that's kind of complicated now. Wait a second. Everybody would draw the line. We'd all just draw it in different places. And we might end up on the wrong side of each other's line. Depends on why we're drawing it and where. So where do we draw that line? Well, where did Jesus draw that line in the parable? This is the scariest part of the whole story. And it's probably its most, most obvious application. Where did Jesus draw the line? Did the rich man ever do anything mean to the poor man? Did he ever apparently do anything evil in his life? No, where did he draw the line? He drew the line on people that could have done something but did nothing. Now all of us in the Western world are on that side of the line. Jesus drew the line. The rich man, he was right outside your gate and the rich man knew him because he called his name, Lazarus. He knew where he was and it says he was at a gate and it said he feasted every day. In other words, he had enough money to throw parties every day. And this poor man was literally outside his gate. He didn't do anything bad to him. He just never did anything to him. And Jesus says, let's draw the line here where those who could have helped didn't help. Whoa. Now where's the line? Here's the thing, friends. There's only one person who can draw the line. 
fact, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this, the, the line between good and evil doesn't run through countries or political parties. It runs through every human heart. The line of good and evil is right here in every one of us. Now, who of us then is fit to draw the line? Who is fit to judge? Only Jesus. And that is one of the underlying themes of the New Testament, where Jesus says, do not judge each other. There is only one judge, and judgment is not now, but it's coming, and it's me. It was a story of a woman who was caught in adultery, who was brought, and in that society, she would be punishable by death. So was the man, but where was he? Not there. She's there thrown in front of Jesus. All these guys are ready to stone her. That would have been Jewish law. And they said, Jesus, what do you think? He says, okay, whoever doesn't have any sin, you can throw the first stone. Now went home. You cannot judge. You are not fit to judge each other. You are not fit to draw the line because everybody would draw it in a different place. Do you want the suicide bomber to draw the line? No. But you don't want me drawing it either because we're not able to because we see ourselves better than others. We, don't, we, ha are, we are as myopic and self-centered as the rich man who didn't see where the line was in his own life. So the reason we want Somebody to draw the line because we know it needs to. It needs to be God because he is the only one who is perfectly just and able and sees everything. That's why we want, and don't say you don't want judgment. Many of us have this picture of God that is like a, a happy grandfather that doesn't care what his children do. But he's not, he's a father. And a good father, a good parent, cares what is happening between their children. A good parent doesn't go there, there, when there's an injustice going on, when one is abusing the other, or taking advantage of the other, or exploiting the other. A good parent doesn't go, it doesn't matter, I love you all. It doesn't matter what you do. That's not goodness. That's apathy and cowardice. The fact that there is judgment tells us we have a God who loves us enough to intervene. He loves us enough to say, I do not accept everything that goes on in the world as good, even though some people die unpunished and other people die unvindicated. I will deal with it. We want judgment. Any presentation of God and a worldview that has no judgment is not a worldview of love. It is a worldview of permissiveness and apathy. And so we want judgment also because we realize, I don't think I want anyone judging. I just want you to do it because I don't think anyone else is fit to do it. But here's the other reason we want there to be judgment, because it frees you and I to love. If there is no judge, then each of us has to make up. Who's going to right the wrongs? Who's going to right the wrongs that have been done to me? I'm going to have to if no one else is going to. Therefore, I cannot love the people that offend me. I have to exact judgment, even if that's meaning the only thing I have to do is to hold out my love from them for the rest of my life. That I will withhold my love because of what they have done. What a miserable place the world would be, and often is, because we don't forgive. And the only grounds to forgive, who are you? Are you gonna go to Rwanda and say to them, oh, just forgive. Are you going to go to Sudan? Are you going to go to people whose families have been killed in front of them just because of their ethnic identity and tribal connection and say, you should forgive? On what grounds do you have to say that to them? On what rights and grounds do we have to send people in for peacekeeping missions and somehow trivialize their problems as, oh, civil warrior was fighting with each other? What grounds do we have to say forgive? Because don't worry, justice will come. It's just not yours and mine. 
to exact. It frees us to love. Now I know, okay, some of you have been dealing with hurts and pains in your life. It doesn't throw us into love, but it is the beginning point because where forgiveness gets stalled out is when we are holding on to justice. And the beginning point of justice is saying there is a judge and he is right and he is fair and he's better, he's more fair than I am, so I will let go. And as we let go, we begin the journey of forgiveness. You see why there has to be judgment? If there is no judgment, God is not loving. We are left to right all of our wrongs and therefore we cannot love. You may have a problem with how God judges, but you have to acknowledge there has to be justice. And ultimately what we say when we say, well, God, I don't like the way you do this, I actually think I'm a better judge of the world than you are. And I, I'm trying to learn to stop saying that. So before I close, where are we at here? Time, no clock today. Okay, let's, let's do some questions. Tony, have you got anything? Is your phone blowing up there? Okay. All right. Um, yeah, there was a couple that were similar. So uh, along the lines of what happens to someone who, who is a non-Christian or doesn't believe in God, but who has lived his life for others. Um, another one was, um, you know, or someone who's never heard the gospel or been exposed to the gospel, had a ch- chance to hear of the gospel. Um, what happens to them after death? And so the one example is, is the Dalai Lama going to hell? Yeah, so the quick answer is, I, d- <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> okay? Um, I'm not the judge. And I don't, and that sounds like a cop out, but on one level, I think that is part of the New Testament message is Jesus is just. And I think one of the things that I have had to wrestle with that I've come to is to say, my sense of justice, where do these questions come from? We want to know, will God be just? Where does your and my imperfect sense of justice even come from? Our, our sense of justice is an imperfect, sinful form of his perfect justice. So if you are concerned whether God will be just, then you just need to pray that he will be just. You also want God to be merciful because we often want mercy for ourselves and justice for everybody else. And so we are trusting God to hold these two things that otherwise we find to be intention and opposite. Justice says you get what you deserve. Mercy says you don't get what you deserve. You get something you didn't deserve at all. How do these two things come together? Only in God, his justice and his mercy are both present in scripture. So these questions fall, can I say this, between those two things, and we're caught with them. The Christian worldview is that there are not many roads up the mountain. Many people will say, oh, well, you know, all religions are kind of the same. They're all just scaling different sides of the same mountain. And we're all trying to get to where they go. First of all, it's kind of an arrogant thing to say to tell every religion that they're essentially the same. And, and the other parable that's used, um, in, in, in my, so my, my ethnic background in, in, uh, in East India, this, this is what the, the analogy is used, and I've heard this before, and I've also read it in philosophy textbooks in university, that it's like four blind men with the elephant. Have you heard that story? 
Well, there's, there's four blind men, and one of them is grabbing the tail of the elephant. It's saying, oh, I know what an elephant is. It's sort of long and a bit, you know, thin. And another one's grabbing the leg, and they're saying, oh, I know what an elephant is. It's this large tree. And another one's grabbing the trunk, and another one's holding it aside. It's a great wall. And they're all right, but they're not right. Now, sounds like a good analogy for world religions. The problem is, who's seeing the elephant? Who's the one with no blinders on? The person telling the story, the person saying, guys, you got it all wrong. This is impossible for any of us to avoid saying that we have it right. Even the person who says you all have it wrong is saying, I'm right, you're all wrong. Even what seems to be a very pluralistic, inclusive view is essentially saying to everyone, you're all wrong. I'm the one with the blinders off. You're all blind saying, you see, I can see you're just all holding an elephant and it's all a little bit different. You can't avoid coming to questions of these things from an exclusive view. Every one of us, depending on our worldview, has an exclusive view. So this, the Christian worldview that says, no, God has not chosen to reveal himself in all different ways, but he has chosen to reveal himself in Jesus, that God cannot be both an immaterial, non-personal, supreme consciousness into which everything will be absorbed, and Jesus. Those are two entirely different explanations of who God is. And so the exclusiveness of the Christian view says that, yes, Jesus is the way to the Father because he is the Father in the flesh. Now, what does that mean for those who reject him? In a sense, it, it come back to this thing and saying, well, for those who, and, and this idea of whether people are good or not, again, I'm not a judge of, so don't ask me to say where your friend or your grandfather is. I don't know. God is thankfully the judge of that we would all, again, draw the line at different places. But where, where this leaves us in terms of, well, what does, it's not about our good works. It's not about how good we are as people. That's not, because none of us can scale the ladder of good deeds to get to God. None of us can fix what's truly wrong in our own lives. In fact, if you notice this, the more we live with good deeds in our lives, what, what tends to creep up within us? Pride. We have all the sins that, on the inside. You've seen this in your own life. I've seen it in mine. There's no path of righteousness that we work out ourselves that gets us to God. And so all of us are in need of God's mercy, and God says mercy is available in Jesus. And so what happens to those that reject Jesus and essentially saying, well, I don't want to be with God. And this is the whole picture of God eventually saying, okay, fine, second the motion. Ultimately, what it means to reject God our entire lives is to mean that we will end up apart from him in that. And so that's the, I don't know if that properly answers those questions. This is a related one, um, but I think, um, well, I'm going to interpret this anyways in more just kind of like a practical response. Like, well, um, so the question is, you know, what do you say to those or to someone who doesn't believe that God even exists and doesn't believe in the afterlife? So where might you even start? Um, in a conversation with someone like that. Okay, so that's a big question in terms of what about, what about people that don't believe in God and where do you... Um, I mean, I think ultimately what I've realized, it's not my job to convince anyone of anything. You, you are with God if you know him, not because of propositional truth, but because you've entered into a relationship with him. But how does that... Someone, I think a lot of people, many Christians included, have unquestioned assumptions in their lives. And so... I think what we need to do is begin the dialogue and say, well, if we assume that there is no God, 
and therefore there is no, often people who don't believe in a God don't believe in sort of absolute right or wrong, that we're just all trying to live as best as we can. This question of, well, where does evil come from, and who's fit to judge it? These are questions we say, well, if I believe that, well, what, then what, why do I believe that there are things that are right and wrong? A person that does not believe that there is a God would never ask, well, why is there suffering in the world? There is no why, there just is. Everything is a matter of chance and time. And so something inside of us, I believe all of us, have a sense of justice and right and wrong that we have to ask, well, where does that even come from? Is this just a utilitarian kind of thing that was birthed in us because we, uh, for survival? Why, why does someone who believes that survival of the fittest is how we got here is trying to fight survival of the fittest in Africa? That's what's happening in poor countries is that rich, powerful people are oppressing weak and not powerful or uh, um, you know, um, disadvantaged people. Well, that's survival of the fittest. So why are people who believe that the world has come about survival of the fittest trying to fight survival of the fittest? Where does that sense of justice and right and wrong come from? Why do we think that someone should go intervene and stop human trafficking? Because it's wrong. And not just because it's wrong, because democratically we think it's wrong, because the most amount of people think it's wrong. What? Because there's something inside of us that says it's wrong because it's wrong. But why do we value so much a human life that in a sense by chance evolved and happens to be human life and not an ape and not a one-celled amoeba? Why do we put so much value on human life? When we, so to me, I think that there are questions that we have worldviews that we think, well, there is no God, there is this thing, but yet we have values that we just assume everybody has that they don't. So where do they come from? So it's not a good answer to that question. I just think we need to actually ask, well, why do we believe what we believe? How can I believe that there's nothing, there's no inherent meaning in the world? I came by chance, I'm going to chance, nothing is happening after I die, nothing came before I die, and yet everything in the world has so much meaning. The life of everyone, everyone has so much, everyone, human beings are so much more valuable than animals or trees, and so we should fight to save them. Why? Why do you think that? Where did it come from? Not being arrogant, I just think that these are things that we have to wrestle through as questions is why do we believe and how does what we believe about the origin of life affect what we believe about the value of human life? And these things actually have to connect. I think I'm a Christian not because it answers all my questions, but because it, it's best at explaining the way the world is and why I feel the way I feel about myself, about the world. It seems to tie together. And yet I think most people live with a very disconnected view of the world. We have a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of atheism and a little bit of Christian values and a little bit, and it's kind of a quilt, and yet it doesn't hang together. And so I think we need to be dialoguing with one another and saying, hey, why do we believe what we believe? And now even for a Christian to say, well, I've always believed it's because I've raised it. Well, that's no good. How do you know that that's actually true, what you believe? So conversation, I think, is really uh, important. How are we doing? Can we do one more? Okay, here's one. Uh, the question says, what about people used by God for his purposes and teaching his lessons? And then the example that's given is Ananias and Sapphira. And the question is, is there grace? So um, maybe we can even broaden that question a little bit. Ananias and Sapphira um, is the example in the book of Acts where they're selling their possessions and giving them uh, to uh, others in the church that, uh, that have needs. And so Ananias and Sapphira sell their field and they, and they only give a portion of it, but they tell the apostles that they're giving all of the proceeds to the church, but they're actually lying and keeping it. And then all of a sudden, the, the spirit enlightens the apostles, they call them out, and they drop dead. Um, but they're part of the church. 
And in, in uh, you know, according to this question, like in a sense, God was using them in some ways, hmm. um, but then there's judgment all of a sudden in them. So if that can happen to them, you know, where do we stand? How do we right. how do we enter in like yeah. with well, some yeah. confidence? In yeah, terms of where ab- we stand before God. Absolutely. And let, let's end there because I think that's a really good question is when, when we can't, I think one of the implications of this story is you don't know who's going to be there. Everybody listening to this story would have thought the rich man was blessed by God and the poor man was not. And Jesus reverses it. And that's what st- would have stunned them the most. And so exactly prodigal. Thanks, Gene. The prodigal son, same story, story of reversal. Whoever thinks they're in better be... Now, then that, does that mean that we're all now going to be scared every week? <laughs> How do we find a place to be at... We are all dependent every day on the grace of God. And the heart that God looks for is not the heart that has it together. We have sinned, we will sin. We have sinned, we sin today, we'll do it again tomorrow. We are totally dependent daily on the grace of God. And, to, and we actually find peace within that. That that is the place of rest where we say, okay, you know what? Like, my whole life has always been about trusting him. It's never been about me. So when I fall and I fail, I'm reliant on his grace just as much as when I thought I was doing really well. And therefore, the more I know his grace, the more attitude of grace I will have to those around us. And that, that's, and that's, it is, and I think this is where I wanted to end. This question of hell and judgment is fundamentally an issue of trust. Do I trust Jesus? Do I trust him that it, that it is enough? And I, so I want to ask you a couple of questions here. Do I trust him that what he says about God's judgment is real? Do I trust that he is the one who offers me permanent relationship with God and the blessings of God? Do do I trust him? Do I trust him that he is the only one capable and worthy to judge? Can I leave it in his hands? Because of who he is. He is merciful and he is just. And do I trust that he can do this, manage this tension that I cannot between justice and mercy? And so I wanted to give you just a little prayer that you can pray even in the response time, the worship team, you guys can come up. They're going to lead us in a time of response. But with anything that we find doubtful or difficult in our Christian life, here's the prayer. Help me see your mercy and help me trust your judgment. See, this is the time of God's grace. The judgment of God has not come yet. You know, we, many of us know that, that verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John three seventeen says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. To save it. Just because Jesus teaches on hell doesn't mean that God wants some people. The scriptures actually say God does not want anyone to perish. And in fact, the whole reason he sent his son into the world is that we would be saved. He did not send Jesus into the world to condemn us. He sent him to save us. And now is the time of grace. Judgment is coming, but it's not here. And so we have questions about what about the baby who died before the, what about the person in Africa? Let me just say this, you are not that person. God will deal with them. You know Jesus. You are not a baby that has been killed in the road 
before you were old enough. You are not a person in Africa who has never heard you. What are you fundamentally asking? Jesus, can I trust you to deal with those things? You and only you must respond to him. That is the only life you are accountable for in a sense in its response to Jesus. You have all these questions and I'm not saying they're not big, but we approach them from a fundamental attitude of trust and say, okay, well, what is Jesus? What do you want from me? Can I trust you? And so I invite you to do that. If you have more questions, we didn't get to all of them, please feel free to approach me or write me during the week. But let's stand together as the team leads us in response.